All right, good morning. <laughs> I get to preach this morning. This is fun for me. All right, so um, if you're new, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkside, and we are beginning a new series today. And so if this is your first Sunday, this is a great Sunday to be here. So we, uh, as a practice, as a church, uh, take usually a book of the Bible and just kind of walk through it and just take it verse by verse and kind of get, get it in our minds and see what the Lord has for us as we work through it. So uh, we're, that book is going to be the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, kind of towards the end of the Bible there. And, uh, and so we actually will be digging into that book verse by verse and walking through that next week. So, but we start today with Acts 18. And the reason we start Acts 18 is because Acts 18 tells us how the church that Paul wrote a letter to, 1 Corinthians, that's why it's called 1 Corinthians, first letter to them, um, is uh, how it got started and what's, what's going on. And so we need to know... Because we, we as, a, as a church, we believe, so we believe the Bible to be not only inerrant, inspired, but we also understand from a, we call it hermeneutics, and that's a long word, but how we study the Bible is that we, we believe we need to understand its history. We need to know, like, what's going on, and we got to go back 2,000 years, as it were, and we got to kind of step into the sandals of the, the guys who were listening and hearing this, and like, what was their life like? What was their city like? What was their culture like? What were they facing that the writer had to say this or that, right? And so that's part of the goal today is to learn a little bit about the background. Uh, and I promise you it's very applicable. It's not just educational this morning, but applicable um, to our lives. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we will dig in. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to study your word, uh, to dig into the scriptures and go uh, verse by verse here. We thank you for the uh, book of Acts here we get to look at to kind of set ourselves up for our uh, year-long series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Pray, God, you guide us, lead us. Help me, God. Um, help me to speak clearly, accurately. Um, and Lord, uh, that your spirit will work in and through each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've ever uh, seen a boxing match or a UFC match or even watched a Rocky or uh, Creed film, uh, you're familiar uh, with the concept of throwing in the towel. It's when a, when a coach of a fighter uh, would throw in uh, into the ring, throw a towel in the ring. He wants to stop the fight, wants to concede defeat, right? It's over. My guy's gotten beat up too bad. We need to stop this right now. We, we, we give up. Um, it seems to have originated, did some history on this one, it seems to have originated back in the 18th century uh, where a coach uh, threw in a sponge into the ring. It was kind of what he had to try to stop the match and keep his, uh, his guy from getting beat up too bad. And so he threw a sponge in. And the uh, first reference, interesting enough, just random fact here I found, first reference to a coach throwing in the towel into a boxing ring was actually in Indiana back in January of 1913. Uh, the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette was the first to ever record that statement and have its use. Well, today, uh, that phrase is used much outside of the boxing ring or UFC match, right? To throw in the towel is used in a figurative way for the idea of giving up. The idea of it uh, admitting failure, uh, the idea of quitting as a result of maybe frustration or discouragement or disappointment. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, all right, and we're honest with Jesus this morning, which I hope we always are, we want to be transparent here. If we're honest, uh, we have to admit that there are areas of life, right? Certain areas, maybe life, maybe life as a whole, where you just, just want to throw in the towel or just want to quit. Uh, you feel discouraged. Um, you feel like you want to give up. For some of you, it may be because of a loss of a loved one, a broken relationship, a, a damaged marriage, a wayward child, the feeling of just being alone, 
uh, financial hardships, you know, dead-end job, failing a class, failing to make a team. There's all kinds of reasons and areas where we feel like so frustrated and so discouraged that we just want to kind of give up. So as we look at scriptures today, we're going to find out, as we look at the whole of the Bible, is that we're not alone in this. If you feel this way this morning, you are not alone in that. Matter of fact, I love about the Bible is that it's real, it's transparent, right? It, it, it doesn't gloss over. If you've never read it before, it's not maybe what you think it is, okay? In terms of like everybody was maybe perfect and everyone did everything right. No, they didn't, okay? You can read it and find real people, right? Real sinners like all of us in their life. And we can find people that were really discouraged, find people that were really alone. There was this guy named Moses you may have heard of, um, he felt this way after hearing all the complaints from the people. He finally got tired of it. And he's like, God, please, just take me out of here. I don't want to hear any more complaints anymore. Joshua felt this way after, the, after his uh, army was defeated at Ai. Um, Elijah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, felt this way after Jezebel threatened his life. And he ran out into the woods and told God multiple times, I just want to die. Just leave me here. I'm done. Uh, Job, uh, a guy in the Bible, um, also felt this way when he lost his family and lost everything that he owned. And get this, even Jesus, even Jesus Christ, as we read about him in the Gospels, felt discouragement. He was known, Isaiah, the, the, the prophet Isaiah spoke about him into the future, called him a man of sorrows. And we said, what does that mean? That, that word means he was perpetually weighed down with sorrow his whole life. Even if you read the Gospels, you'll find, maybe this would be shocking to you to hear, that Jesus actually, there's many occasions where he's in tears. Why? Because he's bearing the weight of human suffering onto himself. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night, the day before, the night he's betrayed, he asks, Father, if there's any way, let this cup, what, pass from me, right? I mean, there's a, I don't want to do this. I mean, so, I mean, this is, this is all over the Bible, this kind of feeling. And so as we come to Acts 18, um, as we look, look at this, we find this guy named Paul. And, and Paul is known as kind of the, the great, if you're familiar with the Bible, he's a great apostle to the Gentiles, right? The writer of nearly half of the New Testament books that we have. The one who saw as a testimony of, of literally seeing the risen Christ on a dusty, dirty road and had his life completely transformed forever. We find him in this letter at this point with great discouragement. A very low point, actually, in his ministry. And in essence, wanting to throw in the towel. We know this because, as you heard read, Jesus himself had to show up and tell Paul, Paul, don't be afraid. Paul, don't quit. Keep going. Don't quit. I'm with you, right? He, he had to reiterate this. Why? Because that's what Paul felt like. So he's at a low point. You say, well, you know, I'm, what got him to this point? You know, you may be sitting there going like, you know, I, 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 my thought of Paul is like, Paul's like, you know, the man's man kind of guy, you know, full thick beard, flannel jacket, dirt shirt, living out in the woods somewhere, fishing and camping or something like that. You know, raspy voice. This guy's like, he's ready to conquer the next mountain, right? Take it on. Like, he's always bold. He's always like this. He wasn't always. About a year and a half prior to our text here, Paul was in this area called Lystra. You can see this up on the map. This is modern day. You kind of see that. Uh, the section where it says Asia Minor, 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 Asia Minor. Um, Galatia, uh, you see that right there, right, right beneath there is kind of where Lystra was. He was there, it's his first missionary journey, and honestly, it almost became his only missionary journey. He went into the city, starts telling them about Jesus, you know, and people don't like it. So much so that they run him out of the city, and then they stone him. I mean, and they we're not talking about little pebbles, like throwing little rocks at him. I mean, they take the biggest rocks they can find, and they heave them onto Paul. They beat him so bad with these rocks. They pile them on top of him, throwing them down and breaking who knows how many bones, that they presumed he was dead. So they left him there. They walked away. There's 
Paul, lying in the rubble, trying to tell people about Jesus. Very first missionary journey, right? Very first time out. He's basically left for dead. He gets back up, shakes off the dust, as it were, and you know what he does? If you know the story, he, he gets up, he goes back into the same city. <laughs> he goes back into Lystra and goes, okay, I wasn't done yet, hold on. And he like, goes back in and he starts talking about Jesus some more. And you're like, now that's the Paul I know. Like, that's who I'm familiar with. I've read this. I, that's the kind of guy that I've, I'm used to seeing with that. Well, what happened to him? What happened after that? Well, he had a second missionary journey. And this was a arduous kind of to say the least after traveling now imagine him here he traveled hundreds of miles through asia minor on foot uh, visiting the churches he had planted with mixed results some were doing well some weren't he crossed the aegean sea there and went into the greek kind of mainland his uh he started there by healing in this this portion healing a a demon-possessed girl in philippi and that didn't go well it sparked a riot for him uh, he and Silas actually got beaten. He got beaten again with rods uh, and thrown into prison, presumably to die. After being released, uh, following a devastating earthquake, he was forced to leave Philippi, and he went on to this city called Thessalonica. And all these may, they may sound familiar to you if you've read the New Testament. Philippi is where we get the book of Philippians to, and you know, Thessalonica, the book of First and Second Thessalonians. So he goes over to Thessalonica, where he is once again forced to flee and go to a place called Berea. Now, Berea, that kind of started off well. It was actually a good spot. Um, but the, the mob that beat him up in Thessalonica actually went 45 miles. Can you imagine this, how much they hated Paul? Gathered themselves for 45 miles, marched all the way down to Berea, and, and ran him out of that city as well. So he's getting run out of there. He, goes, uh, he then goes to a city called Athens, all right? And he goes to Athens, and we read this in chapter 17 of Acts. He's all alone. He's all alone in that city. He's usually with somebody. He's kind of by himself now. And he begins to, as it were, spar intellectually here with the people of, of Athens, talking about Jesus and talking about who he was. And the large part, he got ignored, uh, or he got mocked for the large part of that, that time together. That brings us to our text today, where Paul arrives in Corinth. He's left Athens, where he was all alone, where he was rejected once again. And he has to go 53 miles on foot. That's a long, it's a long hike, right? 53 miles, he gets to the city of Corinth from Athens. And once again, we find him all alone. And most likely, most commentators, those are the guys that kind of write a little bit about the Bible, they actually, uh, most of them believe that he probably was broke. He ran out of money. He got support um, from other churches at the time, but he ran out, and which is why he started going back to doing tent making in the city. He arrives at the city gate of Corinth. You can imagine he's still got healing or broken, broken bones. He's got broken relationships. He's got a broken heart. He's exhausted. He's discouraged. He's anxious. And we could even say possibly burned out. Uh, one commentator put it this way. I thought this was good. Ken Hughes said this way. He said, Paul may have felt like a football that had taken the right bounces and refused to be fumbled. And yet every time his team scored, he was spiked to the turf mercilessly and then kicked the length of the field. In fact, the better he performed the more he was spiked and kicked. That kind of is a good summary of exactly what he felt like. And so Paul, we could say, has been through the ringer. He's been under excruciating tension for a very long time, and almost could say that he's losing his ability to kind of rebound from these things. And here, here's the thing. Much of the weight that Paul is feeling is not just what he had faced that we just talked about, but what was staring him right in the face, which was this city called Corinth. This place, this city, had a reputation for spiritual darkness, okay? 
I church planted in East Hollywood for eight years before I came here, and I could say very much there's, there's something to that when you have a place that's so dark and so broken that there's a weight about it uh, that you can't put your finger on. And Paul had that. The city was like that. It was filled with very proud, hard, and immoral people who actually were very proud of being those very things. And there was no place in the entire Roman Empire, which had basically taken over the then-known world, not even Rome, where there was a more bold-faced corruption. Paul even talks about, you say, man, how do we know he felt this way? He actually wrote the Corinthians, and we'll see this in the coming weeks. He told them what he felt like when he got there. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is is what he felt like when he got into the city of Corinth. This is what he felt like being in that place. So I want you for a second, I want you to walk with me into the city of Corinth with Paul, into ancient Corinth. And I want you to see, I want you to feel, I want you to hear what the city was like and what he was facing, because this is all going to make it, all going to come back up in our study of 1 Corinthians. You can imagine upon entering the gates, Paul would sense, first of all, probably the vastness of the city. Corinth was the third largest city in the then known world um, in the Roman Empire, had over 700,000 people, making it virtually the same size as modern day we would consider Las Vegas. And like walking into Las Vegas, and there's a lot of similarities here to that city in this, in this one, uh, Paul would be wowed by kind of the dazzling wealth and the impressive structures. This is kind of an artist's recapturing of what the city may have looked like. So you kind of get the idea. Corinth was possibly the most modern city of the ancient world, and the Corinthian bronze was a very uh, world-famous uh, in that place, and so they used bronze to make everything. And so you can imagine that bronze sculptures, fountains, and columns were quite common. Paul would have to shield his eyes from the glare of the sun, shine off these impressive uh, structures and buildings that they would have had. As Paul weaved his way uh, through the crowds, he would no doubt hear the, uh, the applause of crowds, and the, there was these games they had there. They called them the Isthmian Games. Uh, they were held every two years in Corinth, and they were second only in importance to what is the Olympic Games that they still have today. They had, uh, at that race, at, at this, uh, this, these games, Isthmian Games, uh, they had foot races, okay, sprints, they had boxing, they had wrestling, um, they even had chariot racing, actually. This is kind of, again, an artist's rendering of what it was like inside the Colosseum there uh, in ancient Corinth. Um, and so they had that. They also had, they held poetry competitions, they had musical competitions. They had competitions where they would, they would actually race and see who could, who could ride the most horses jumping from horse to horse around the circle, right, and see how many you could do before falling off. I mean, this was practically, you know, 4-H is pretty much what's going on here. As Paul made his way to the center of the city, okay, he would have been overwhelmed at the buzzing sound of commerce. And interesting enough, one of the most interesting things he would have seen would have been the image of boats being dragged across the ground. Um, This is an area they would have done. You can see on the kind of a a Google Maps there, modern day, but you can see that uh, that word that is a little blurry there for you, but you see D-I-O-K-O-S, L-K-O-S in the middle there. There's a line going through, that white line in the middle. That was a, um, a, a piece of land that actually went across, an isthmus that went across about four miles long. And ships would come into that shoreline on one side, they would park there, and then the slaves would grab the boats and literally on ropes and drag them across this four miles and then deploy them back on the other side. You say, why in the world would they do that? Because it was another 200 miles to go south around the Cape. And you go around the Cape, it was kind of like the Bermuda Triangle, as it were, of the day, and there was a lot of ships lost down there. The storms were bad. You can read later on in the book of Acts, towards the end, Paul gets in the shipwreck that's from that kind of area. It's really bad, especially during wintertime. 
And so to save money, to save time, they would go across right here. So the entire world would travel through Corinth, right? The whole entire world would kind of go through it. And two harbors, again, on both sides. And even the whole concept of them having a, a, a massive amount of slaves in the city, and a third of the city was represented by that, um, they paid them very little to do this, and it really had a big separation in the, in the actual culture between those who have and those who have not, right? It was the very rich and the very poor as well. A lot of economic uh, frustrations going on there. One ancient writer uh, said, quote, I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor in Corinth, right? So there was this drastic kind of difference in the city. So as Paul would have made his way through the city, maybe get towards the center there, uh, maybe he stopped to get some lamb chops or uh, lamb gyros or something like that back in ancient Greece. Um, he enters into this kind of Vegas-like city. He would have been repulsed by what in the culture would have been kind of, we would call it kind of snootiness of the people. Um, it was what uh, theologian Ed Sheeran calls beautiful people. Um, no one's going to get that. Um, he's not a theologian, by the way. But anyway, but it was. It was people, people trying to get ahead in life, right? People trying to get ahead in life. Uh, through schmoozing, we would call it. Uh, there was the rubbing shoulders with the powerful, right? There was the, the pulling strings, scratching each other's back to kind of get ahead, uh, spotlight-seeking, dragging rivals' names through the dirt, and um, all of that. And so the citizens of Corinth, especially those who were more wealthy, were obsessed with their status, and they wanted to climb the social ladder, and they wanted to be just like our modern-day culture. They wanted to be popular. They wanted to be everyone like them. They wanted to be everyone's friend, right, kind of idea. So cliques public boasting, self-promotion was almost an art in Corinth. Now, we're going to see this in chapter 1 of Corinth. This is exactly what's going on in the church. Um, and so Paul continues his journey. He keeps working through the city. As he gets into the evening hours, the shadows begin to, to form. And he would have seen then what was probably the kind of what brought him the greatest fear and discouragement to his soul. Up on the mountain, he would look, the shadows would be cast. He would see this Acropolis. And you can see this is, this is actually ancient Corinth, modern day, um, pixels are bad here, but you can see the, uh, the land there up on top of the mountain up top would have been what was called the Acropolis. And the hill housed at least a dozen temples up there, okay, worship temples up on top of that mountain. And there was one temple that stood out among them all, and it was a temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And just so you know, they didn't uh, make Valentine's cards there or sell heart-shaped candy there, okay, that's not what they did. There were over, get this, over a thousand priestesses that resided in that temple, and they would ply their trade um, both there and in the streets of Corinth as prostitutes. So this made Corinth, I mean, we could say, well, I keep comparing it to Las Vegas, it's very much the original sin city, okay? Paul, uh, even in the church, Paul would have to rebuke them um, for, for very much this kind of sexual morality. As a matter of fact, it was going to be a point of a part of First Corinthians that you may like, this may be shocking to you if you've never read it, but they're going to have to deal with like this guy who is sleeping with a stepmom. You're like, this is not okay. Why are you guys letting this happen? Like a lot of the culture was seeping into the actual church itself. Not only that, there was also, they had a massive problem in that culture in Corinth with uh, substance abuse and drunkenness. When one Greek writer uh, at the time, he said, he said, look, if ever a Corinthian was shown up on the stage of a Greek play, whenever they wanted to show, okay, let's, let's show a Corinthian on the, on the Greek stage. Whenever they would show up, they said that character was always drunk. <laughs> every, every time, oh, that's, that's what Corinthian, okay, he's got to be drunk. That's what Corinthians are. I mean, that, that's just kind of the culture they were in. There was even a word they used. They used the word to Corinthicize. Uh, which referred to any kind of moral depravity that they witnessed. They would be like, oh yeah, that's what Corinthians do. So you kind of start getting the idea that this was kind of a messed up city. 
again, so bad within the church that Paul, <laughs> it's almost shocking to say this, but this is actually what 1 Corinthians is going to address. Um, he had to address and confront them on the fact that some of them in the church, in the church, were getting drunk at communion with the wine at church. They, they were coming in, they were doing that. And, um, and that'd be one of those things I, I would probably suggest that's an indication of a severe alcohol problem, right? If you come to communion, you're like, thank you, Jesus, I'll take another one. That, that, that's, that's a problem, right? And that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. They were using wine for their communion, and people were getting drunk at communion. I mean, it was chaos. I mean, it was complete chaos. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and he had to deal with what he entered, had to deal with, what he, um, with the people there. He mentions in 1 Corinthians 6 that the, that the, the people were full, the church was full of, um, or the culture was full of sexual morality, idolatry, adultery, greed, and drunkenness. Those are just a few things that he's going to bring up. This place was crazy. Uh, I was almost like make, make Vegas blush today. And so it's no wonder that Paul is kind of feeling discouraged as he walks throughout the city. He's seen this play out multiple times. He knows what's probably going to happen. He's going to get beat down. People are going to freak out, and they're going to run him out of the city. He's going to have to go to another one. And here's the thing. Jesus knows this about his boy. He knows this about Paul. He knows what he's facing. He knows what he's feeling. And get this, he knows exactly where you are today. Nothing you can hide from him. Nothing you can keep secret from him. You may keep it secret from everybody else, but he knows exactly where you are today. He knows what you're feeling, knows what you're thinking. He knows all of that. And because he knows that, Jesus is going to encourage Paul and through the story encourage us to not throw in the towel and to not quit and to not give up. And what we find in the text, we'll find three, three different things here that, 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 uh, that Jesus gives to Paul. He gives him friends, he gives him fruit, and we'll talk about that, and then also future grace, future grace, all right? So number one, uh, Jesus gives us friends. Here in the first uh, couple of verses, we find Paul uh, referenced here as a tent maker by trade, okay? A tent maker, not like selling camping tents, okay? Because, I mean, who would want to buy those anyway? Um, Rather, it was, uh, I just love making fun of camping. It's fun. I, I'm going to make fun of it later, too. Don't worry about it. Um, if you didn't get it at that time. Rather, it was, uh, it was most likely um, animal skins, most likely, that uh, would have been used. So they wouldn't use in that city for like an awning for the sellers in the marketplace, right? So an awning for them, uh, used for cover for kind of athletes during the, uh, the games. Uh, possibly even, some think it, he may have used some of his trade to actually make sales, uh, for the ships that would come over and maybe they got beaten up on the way over and before they relaunched them, he would be able to make those sails and sell them to them. But as Paul labored, again, here he is all alone, trying to see maybe what doors God was going to open to him, he ran into a, a, a beautiful, lovely couple. I mean, this Aquila and Priscilla um, were amazing. They come up multiple times in the scriptures. And for whatever reason, in my mind, the AT&T commercial with Zoe and Chris came up to me. I'm like, this is basically Aquila and Priscilla. Um, if you've never seen that commercial, when you do see it, now you're going to think Aquila and Priscilla. See? Connecting the Bible. It's good. So, uh, so Paul, discovers, Paul discovers this couple, this great couple, you know, this great couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, he discovers that they love Jesus. And not only that, they're tent makers by trade too. I mean, this is what, what are the quote-unquote coincidence here, right? Jesus brings literally into Paul's life somebody who both loves Jesus and even has the same skill or same trade as he does. And not only that, he finds out as they start to do business together, Paul finds out that they've also walked through similar roads that he's walked through. He's been kicked out of multiple cities. He's been beat up. He's been persecuted. And we find out from the text that, sure enough, they come from Rome, where they had been ushered out, right? Claudius had said, hey, all Christians, get out of Rome, get out of here. And, uh, and they had been forced to run, forced to flee on foot and to get out. And so they relate to one another uh, in this way. 
I mean, isn't that good? Isn't that good of Jesus to only give Paul some new friends here, which stay with him for a long time, that love Jesus, but also friends that can relate to his suffering, right? He puts them around them. And this was a, a real kind of pick-me-up for Paul. Not only that, uh, again, they become lifelong friends. This couple is mentioned three more times in Paul's letters. Listen to what he says about them in the book of Romans. He says, Greet um, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. You almost get the reference there that they saved his life. I mean, they, they saved his life. They, they took some kind of uh, brunt for him. They, they risked their life for him to, to save him in multiple occasions. And even their reference, interestingly enough, Paul's very last words that he writes is a book called Second Timothy. At the very last chapter, chapter 4 of that book, he references them again, and they were there the days before he even died. So they became lifelong friends from this point. This is where they met, and they became lifelong friends. And Paul was greatly encouraged by this, and we know this because look at verse 4. It says, Paul began to reason in the synagogue every Sabbath, right? Try to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So here's Paul. He's getting back on mission, right? He's back on mission. He's back in the ring. He's back doing what Jesus called him to do. And not only does Jesus send Paul new friends, here we find out in the next verse, he sends him old friends too. See these guys here? When Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews and that the Christ was Jesus. So Silas and Timothy, they're, they're good friends of his. They've been gone for a while. They missed each other. Uh, they return as well. And so Paul now has four friends with him. And look at the progression. I think it's interesting. After spending time with Aquila and Priscilla, it says Paul, quote, reasons with people about Jesus. The word reasoning is the idea that he sat down and had a, like a little Q&A. Hey, what, do you guys, what questions do you guys have about Jesus? I'd love to answer them. Kind of casual kind of conversation. When, when uh, Silas and Timothy arrived, the language here when it says he was occupied is the word he pressed himself into the word. In other words, the idea is he passionately preached the word. So he went from kind of this dialogue kind of thing, and then he gets two more friends come, he gets more encouraged, and now he's getting more bold, and now he's back to doing what Paul does. He's in the middle of the city square, and he's preaching um, to, to them. He's testifying here. It's the word it means to be an extremely high level of personal involvement, right? He's, he's all in. I mean, Paul is in the ring now. He's, he's all in. And so listen, are you, are you discouraged? Let's bring this home here. You need to pick your head up for a second. You need to look around you. Take inventory of your life and those that God has placed in your life. Yeah, maybe he's placing people in you that have hurt, in your life that have hurt you. Okay, I get that. But he's also placed people in your life, be it a spouse, be it family, be it friends, be it neighbors, be it members of the church, be it whoever, that God has placed it. Maybe you're just not seeing, but he's put them there in your life. They're, they're friends, right? They've walked with you through a lot of hard times, and they're there. Um, and so Jesus placed them in your life. Be grateful to Jesus for them, and be grateful to them for them. Right? It was the last time you turned around and, thought, and thanked somebody who's just you know, been with you for a long time. They've just, they've been, maybe they're long-distance friends. Maybe you've had to move and you've kind of moved away, but you're still friends. When's the last time you just called them up or maybe went over, if there's someone close, you went over to their house and you said, you know, I just want to thank you for being a good friend to me. Thank you. That's a grace gift from God for you, right? So don't lose sight of that. Look around and see those kind of friends. Tell them that you're thankful for them. Right? Stop looking maybe what you don't have and look at what you do and what Jesus put right in front of you and the people he's put right in front of you. It's one of the reasons Jesus gives us a local church is for one of these very things. Um, let me put this over too. Let me say this. Do you know someone at Parkside here, maybe who is alone, 
Maybe someone who is, who is discouraged that you can encourage. Are you looking around to see that? Loneliness is a very real issue in our culture today. I just saw a study this last, uh, this last week came out that said 30% of millennials as ages 23 to 38 felt alone. 22% of them say they have zero friends. Zero. That's sad. Like, that's really sad to have nobody in your life. And so as a local church, we get to meet that need. We are family, right? And, and Corinthians, the book of Corinthians is going to talk a lot about us as a family and how we need to love on each other, encourage one another, come alongside of each other. other. Um, so we need to be that. Be Aquila, be Priscilla, be a Silas, be a Timothy. Show up, come alongside of, encourage, befriend, and pray for those around you. Number two, Jesus not only gives us friends, he also gives us, gives us fruit. You say, what does that mean? Like fr- fruit from our labor, fruit from the things that we're, we're doing for him, we're serving him, and there's, there's, there's fruit there that's happening. Verse 6, Paul says he was opposed. It says here he shook off his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. All right, this is, this is kind of the Paul we may know. All right, Paul's kind of back in the game here. He has a new sense of boldness as he's facing some pretty, pretty similar hostility. So the Jewish people, literally the language is they arrange themselves in battle against Paul. So they're all kind of ganging up on Paul. And, uh, and then they decide not only to, to, to go after Paul, it says here in the language they start mocking Jesus. And Paul doesn't like that very much, right? And so realizing that this is not going anywhere and that they're making fun of Jesus, he decides to take his toys, as it were, and go play somewhere else, right? And so it says here that he uh, literally kicks the dust off of his shoes and off of his clothes, you know. Um, I don't know if he did a little bit of Jay-Z brushing the shoulders off thing, but he gets the dust off, you know. That'd be another thing you may not know about. But, um, but he doesn't, bottom line, he doesn't want the dirt on him, right? He doesn't want the dirt on him. Uh, you guys keep your dirt in your synagogue. I don't want anything to do with it. And so he gets out. And look what he does. This is hilarious. Verse 7. He left there. He went to a house, this guy named Justice. His house was where? Right next door. <laughs> So Paul walks out the door, some, some folks follow him, and he decides to plant a church literally right next door to the synagogue in this guy's house. I mean, the buildings were probably attached to each other, and Paul, I mean, he is in the game, right? This owner of this, this, owner of this house, this guy named Justice, judging by his name, was probably a Roman. He was probably, he was, a, he was happy to get out of the synagogue and follow Paul. You say, why is that? Well, it says here he was a worshiper of God. You say, what does that mean? It means he was interested Okay, he was tracking, he was a seeker as it were, he was interested in the God of the Bible, he wanted to know more about it, he didn't know quite everything, but he wasn't yet what they called a proselyte to, to Judaism. He wasn't quite all in yet, and you say, why is that? What was his problem? Well, his, um, a lot of times the main hang-up of this one was that he didn't want to go through circumcision as a grown man, right? That was part of, I'm going to go all in, i got to go all in, and you understand his concern. And so one of the guys uh, that followed him also was not only this guy, but also this leader of a synagogue, and he got converted. Look at verse 8. The leader of the synagogue, right next door, <laughs> comes to Jesus. It says here, Christmas, the rule of the synagogue, verse 8, believes in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so you can imagine this synagogue right next door, they're sharing a wall, you know, I can imagine them becoming bad roommates or bad, uh, bad tenants next door, right? They're bad neighbors, you know, they're, they're upset at Paul, I don't know, they're turning the music up super loud in the middle of the night, uh, maybe they're blaring like Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack, um, Mazel tov, right? Um, I don't know, that's what I imagine, them. if they're going to blare music back then, that's what I imagine them blaring. And so Paul, encur- Paul is encouraged, no doubt, uh, with, sometimes I just have random stuff, you just got to live with it, okay? So Paul is encouraged, no doubt, but with the fruit of his ministry, right? I mean, look at this. 
the ruler of the synagogue next door. This, this Roman guy has come to Christ. Other Corinthians have come to Christ. This church has started. Like, this is, this is exciting. And people are responding to this. And sometimes we lose sight of all that Jesus has done through us. Sometimes we get so discouraged and so myopic on our current situation or the current thing that's happening that makes us really uh, fearful or downcast or discouraged that we fail to pick up our head and look around and go like, yeah, Jesus has done a work in me. Like, he, he has rescued me. He saved me. He has changed my life. There's lots of things that he has done. And so we lose track of that. And if you're following Jesus, I promise you that there are people around you that have been impacted by you, and you may not even know it, right? The fruit of our loving Jesus and talking about Jesus to others may not be known until we see him face to face one day. You may not even know all of that. But I, I remember, I remember this, I, like I've, I think I've told you a story before, but humor me if I have. But um, I remember back in high school, and many of you know my story, so I came to know Jesus when I was 18. I grew up in a, a broken home, um, dead, drugs, alcohol, the whole thing. Um, and so it was a messed up thing. I didn't grow, I didn't grow up going to church, didn't know anything about the Bible. Got radically saved when I was 18, and uh, I remember I had this friend named TJ. And TJ, we played sports together, different stuff together, and got into trouble together and all that. And, um, and I remember um, coming to Jesus, and it was like one of those, like, well, Paul and Damascus Road type things in Acts, like, just radically changed. And I went back to TJ, and I'm like, dude, you got to know about Jesus. And I start talking to him, and TJ's like, uh, no, thank you. Um, you're weird. Um, he thought I joined a cult. <laughs> He's like, what, what happened to you? Because... You're, you're weird now. And, um, and so, so we kind of grew apart, right? We kind of less, became less friends. We didn't hang out as much. Six years into the future go by. I'd never heard from TJ again. I'm living in Los Angeles. I was in Virginia is where I grew up. Living in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm in my apartment. I remember this day. I was in my apartment in Northridge, California. And uh, as I'm sitting there, because um, I remember the McDonald's nightlight shone at night. It was always blinking. And a guy with Tourette's down there was always yelling all night long, giving me education and language I didn't want to know. And um, this was L.A., and so I, this, was my, this was my room. And I remember sitting there, I got a phone call, and it was from a number I could see from Virginia. And I'm like, who is this? So I pick it up, and he goes, hey, is this Chris Barkstow? I said, uh, yeah, who's this? He goes, this is TJ. I'm like, TJ, like in high school, TJ? He goes, yeah, it's me. I was like, how'd you get my number? He goes, oh, I had to run you down. I had to find a couple of friends, you know, and figure out your number. And he said, hey, I, I want to let you know that when you became a Christian, I know I, I didn't like that very much, and we stopped being friends, but I want you to know I, I did listen to you. And he said, I want you to know that I did watch you. And I was, that was kind of scary, right? Because <laughs> you're like, what did I do? And um, he said, I just want you to know, I know it's been six years, but I just want you to know, I, I, I just became a Christian. And I wanted to find you to share this with you because that made a huge impact. I never forgot that. I never forgot what Jesus did in your life. I had no idea. I mean, it was like out of the blue, six years later, in Los Angeles, I get this phone call. And I just say it to encourage you. You may not get that kind of phone call, okay? Maybe you will. Maybe you have gotten something like that. But there are people that are being impacted by your life and the fruit of which you may not be able to see right now. But it's happening. If you were loving Jesus and you're following him and you're seeking to make him known, people's lives are being changed by you, whether you know it or not. And Paul here is experiencing that, right? He's experiencing this transformation. He's experiencing fruit that God has given to him. I mean, you might not see much of it, but it's happening. Thank, thank God for what you see. Uh, so maybe sit down, maybe very practically, and write out people that are or on your computer, whatever you want to do, like write out all the people that you, you can look back and go like, yeah, I remember this person. I had, a, I had an impact in their life. They, they shared that with me. Just maybe start writing some names down. And I think you'll be shocked by going like, wow, there's actually quite a few people that, that have mentioned to me 
been encouraged by me in some capacity or, or have been impacted by me in some capacity. Like, and just start listing that off. And it has a way of lifting your spirits of like off the issue that is making you so discouraged. And if you know someone, let me flip it over again to you. If you know someone who has greatly influ- influenced your life for Christ and you haven't told them, you need to tell them that. <laughs> you need to make it a point if it's a, maybe it's a, maybe it's a teacher from a long time ago, youth pastor from a long time ago, maybe it's somebody, maybe it's a friend, okay, whoever it might be, you need to find them, you need to look them up, and you need to encourage them, because you have no idea how big that is for someone's life. Maybe they need to hear that, and you have no idea what's going on in their life, and that would be a huge encouragement to them. Look down at, uh, skip down to verse 12 with me for a second. Down at verse 12, we get this whole, this whole situation happening here. Paul's actually, typical fashion, dragged before the court, right? Dragged before, dragged before the court, and this uh, Gallio uh, character is there. And he knew, he knew that Paul wasn't breaking any rules. Um, and they didn't usually want to get involved in this kind of, he, he would kind of Jewish squabble over beliefs. He, he kind of viewed Christianity, Judaism, all the same. Um, kind of viewed, most of the Romans viewed Christianity as a kind of a sect of Judaism. Kind of a flavor of the day, Culver's type thing, right? It was just kind of a different kind of version of it. And so just as Paul was about to defend himself in the passage... Um, this guy cuts Paul off, which is unusual because Paul always has to defend himself. And this guy shuts the whole thing down. And he basically says, look, if you, guys are, if you guys are making a complaint about some serious crime that this Paul character did, I don't know if he shot somebody, if he's a terrorist, you're right, he ate somebody. I mean, if he did something like that, um, this would be important. That was funny, by the way. Um, it, it's a short story, total sidebar. I was my, when I first moved to L.A., I found out that some, uh, some guy up the street actually had done that. Um, that was kind of scary, by the way, when you're moving with kids into L.A. Um, could tell you about it later. It's an interesting story. Uh, Modern-day Hannibal Lecter. Anyway, um, so this guy's like going, look, he hasn't done anything serious like that. Done nothing serious like that. Um, this is just a theological debate. I don't want to get involved with this. Get out of here. Right? So he, he runs him out. This is unheard of for Paul. This never happens. This always ends with him getting beat up. Right? Or it always ends with him having to run for his life. Never does a Roman you know, authority figure actually step in and help him out. But it did, they did. Uh, Paul was probably thinking you know, before this happened, like, here we go again. I'm going to get beat up. But God providentially put a reasonable man here, uh, Gallio, in charge and moved him to let Paul go free. And again, this is more fruit in Paul's life. More God, more God just, just uh, favoring his life, working his life that he's doing. So do you make it a point to observe the hand of Jesus in your life? Do you notice the evidences of grace that he has put into your life? Do you, you know he controls everything, right? Controls everything. If you're a follower of Jesus, then God is at work in your life. He's not only using you, but working behind the scenes, get this, to make thousands of providential decisions every single day, that many of which you don't even realize. That school you got into, the job you landed, the promotion you received, the vehicle you got, the food you eat, all that is provided for you by the sovereign hand of God. Thank him for his work in your life. And again, here's the thing. You probably don't even know all the ways he has protected and provided for you and worked in your life. But one day you will. One day you will. He is at work. He is growing you. If you've known him, he is growing you. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began, speaking of Jesus, a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Lastly, uh, Jesus gives us now, this may be new for you, future grace. Future grace. Now, when I say future grace, I'm not talking about necessarily grace as in like heaven, okay? I'm talking about grace of God's power and provision and mercy and wisdom for tomorrow, okay? 
in order to do what he wants you to do five minutes from now or five days from now or five years from now, right? It's, it's future grace that he's providing. And so Jesus is active and he's present in our tomorrows as much as he is in our todays. And Paul needed to know that Jesus had a plan and Jesus was already at work in the future. That's what I mean by future grace. It was already grace being, being uh, given out in the future. Look at verse 9. It's such an important little section here. The Lord said to Paul one night, in the vision, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city that are my people. So here we find Paul struggling, right? We know this because, again, Jesus says, show up and tell him not to be afraid. Keep going. And Jesus comes to him, it says here, one night. We don't know how far removed that is from the new church plant he had started, um, but it's probably not too far removed. And Paul is probably fearful of what he believes is about to happen. Obviously, the synagogue folks next door weren't being very nice. We just saw that at the end of the chapter. They do drag him to court, so obviously that was hard. He did just plant a church literally next door to the synagogue. He may be second-guessing that decision. <laughs> that may have not been a good one. But, you, you know, he, he kind of basically hears the bell. He's like, all right, here we go. I'm in the ring. Here come the punches. And in some ways, Paul is worrying, and this is so important because we do this, Paul is worrying about troubles he is not yet facing. It's a terrible habit, right? He is worried about troubles he is not yet facing. We are pros at borrowing trouble from tomorrow for today. We feel harassed as we wait for something disastrous and unpleasant to happen. <laughs> we know the social event's going to be a flop, right? We're, we're going to fail the test. We're going to lose the match. It's going it's to rain on our picnic, right? It's just kind of a, some of a pessimistic kind of side of us. There was a, a guy named Thomas Carlyle. He was a famous British writer and historian. He had a home in London, and uh, you can still visit that today. And in order to concentrate for his writing, he had a room that was virtually soundproof. He had soundproof it because he got tired of hearing all the noises of the city of London. And, uh, and so he had a neighbor next door who, uh, who owned a rooster, <laughs> That would crows, uh, would, whatever he does, crow, rooster, root, I don't know what he does, whatever rooster does. Um, several times, I know you're going to make fun of me for that one because I don't know what it means. Uh, several times at night, okay, multiple times. And uh, when uh, Carlisle protested to the owner of the rooster, the man pointed out to him that the rooster only crowed three times. Like, every night he only crows three times. I mean, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. <laughs> Carlisle said, but if you only knew what I suffered waiting for that rooster to crow. Right? It's like, I'm just anticipating this thing to happen, and it threw my whole day off, right, this whole idea of this dumb rooster. That's Paul here, right? He's anticipating what's going to happen. He's fearing the unknown, and so Jesus shows up, and he tells him, Paul, keep preaching. He says, I'm with you every step of the way. I'm with you, I'm with you right now, but I'm with you tomorrow, too. Whatever it is you're afraid about, whatever it is you're fearful about, maybe coming up tomorrow, I am already there. I'm already there. Listen, listen to uh, a promise that Jesus makes to many of his followers throughout Scripture. Listen to this, Joshua 1.5. He tells Joshua, look, he was afraid. He'd just taken over. He says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jeremiah 1.8 God says to Jeremiah, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. You pick up on this theme, right? Jesus would say uh, at the end of the Gospels, he would say to the, his followers, Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age, to every step of the way. And then Hebrews 13, 5, we just finished studying Hebrews. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Just, just listen to those again. Just hear those. 
That is a promise that is true for every follower of Jesus. He is with you tomorrow. Not just right now, but tomorrow. Even at the end of, end of Paul's life, he could say this. Here's what he said personally. Very end of his life. Very, one of the la- very last things he said in his life. 2 Timothy 4, 16-17. At my defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me. <laughs> he was there with me. He went through every, even the times where I felt like I was all alone, and I felt like everybody had abandoned me, and everyone turned on me, Jesus was still there with me. So listen, whatever unknown road is ahead of you, whatever darkness you have to traverse, and it will come, whatever uncertainty you have to face, even if it's death itself, just know that as a follower of Jesus, you will never, ever be alone on any step of this journey. Never be alone. That's one of the wonderful promises in the Gospels, one of the wonderful promises of Jesus. Let that encourage you in your discouragement. Now, Jesus also says some more things to Paul here. He tells him that he will be protected from harm from his enemies. You see that? Now, that's an immediate promise for the immediate situation, which we see happen, right? He goes into the courts. He doesn't get beat up, right? He doesn't get dragged through the streets. The God works providentially to change the heart of the Roman authority figure, and he is saved, right? So the, the promise was applicable to that very situation. But the general promise of that is true. You say, how is that generally true? Um, well, there's nothing that can harm us outside of God's providential control. That's not a cop-out. That's just the truth. There's nothing that can harm us outside of God's providential control. Absolutely nothing. Now listen, Paul would die. He would. He would actually die and be beheaded. You know, that, that's rough, okay? But Jesus was still there every step of that way and still in control. Just think about the sense of invincibility. This is kind of what motivated Paul, the sense of invincibility that came with understanding God's providence in your life, that he's got me, and no matter what comes my way, it's all, it's all, he's all working all of this for, for good, and he's in control. He's allotted your days in control of everything, so that you can have a sense of boldness, and listen to this, you can take risks, right? You can take some risks. I mean, this, this is the theological truth that propelled people to move forward and to get the gospel out. One of my favorite missionaries, oh, it's got a, in the bookstore over there, you've heard me talk about him before, John Patton. Not well known, but he was a guy who went to an island uh, called, uh, modern days called Vanuatu out in the Pacific. Uh, used to be called New Hebrides. And he went there to an island of cannibals. So he spends the first half of the book just running for his life, trying not to get eaten, which is probably a good goal in life, right? So that's what he's trying to do. And, it, and it, listen to some of his statements, and I want you to hear this idea that God had his had his hand on him, and God was providentially in control of every day of his life. Listen to this. He said well, at one point, he said, a wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket. Can you just imagine that for four hours, following you around with a loaded musket? And though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him. I bet you did. <laughs> I would too. And attended to my work as if he had not been there fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me, get this, till my allotted task was finished. Now, he didn't know what that task was, but whatever it is, I'm going to stay here until God's done with me. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands, and I felt immortal till my work was done. That's that idea. He's he's he's, he's in control of everything. Listen, he said this another time, another quote from his biography. He said, my heart rose up to Lord Jesus. I I saw him watching all the scene, It was kind of one of those moments of attack. My peace came back to me like a wave from God, and I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was 
held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and earth. He rules nature, animate and inanimate, restrains even the savage of the South Seas. It's all in his hands. It's all in his hands. And that's what makes people like that stay, because you're like, why would he stay? Like, why would he go back home? This sounds miserable. Because he knew God had a plan, and God was at work, and God was going to use him, and he didn't know when that's going to end, doesn't know when that work is done, because it's on Jesus' agenda, but he can trust that. And Paul knew this kind of idea, right? There's one final thing here that, Paul, that uh, Jesus mentions to Paul that really encourages him to keep going. And it wasn't just that Jesus was sovereign over circumstances, but get this, that he was sovereign even over salvation, there is future grace, not just for Paul, but for others in this city. Do you notice that in the text? Jesus tells Paul that there are people in Corinth who are coming to be his people. Do you notice that in the text? I, I got many people in this city, Paul. No one's been there yet. There's no gospel yet in Corinth. It's just starting. This church has started. And Jesus, Jesus is telling Paul, Paul, stay there because I got people here I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring them myself. I'm going to bring them. Stay here. And he does, right? He stays for a year and a half. Jesus is like, look, I, I circled their names in eternity past, and they're going to come to me, and I'm going to use you, Paul. And Paul knew this. Listen to Acts 13, 48. He'd already heard this before. He says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Jesus said similar things uh, in the Gospels. John 10, 16, he says, look, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And listen, I love this about Paul. I love this about Jesus. Jesus says this. He doesn't say to Paul, okay, Paul, I got people I'm going to save here in the city. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to sit there. <laughs> I just want you to zip your mouth up, mouth up, and I'm just going to do all the work for you. That's not what he says, does he? Do, do you see that? I've talked about this a lot, right? There's that balance of two tracks, parallel tracks here. God is completely sovereign, and he's going to open people's eyes, and, and man is fully responsible and culpable to take action. Okay? Those are both truths that are very important to understand. And that's why he says, hey, Paul, I got people here. I'm going to bring them to them, but I want you to go preach. I want you to go get to it. Right? That's what he does. And so he, he, it's powerful motivation for Paul. He does move, right? He goes out there. He goes like, all right, uh, I got guaranteed success here. Somebody, <laughs> you can imagine Paul's life. All right, somebody in this city is going to respond to Jesus. I don't know who they are. So they have like a special, you know, halo over their head or something. <laughs> He's like, I don't know who they're going to be. I'm just going to preach to everybody and let Jesus do the work but I know Jesus is going to do some work, so I'm going to go to it, right? And that's what he does. That, that's that future grace that lights a fire under us and gets our eyes off of ourselves and excited about the work of God. Because listen, guys, if you're here and you're a Christian, can I tell you something? Jesus has not returned yet. That may not be shocking to you, but it's true, okay? He hasn't come back yet. And let me tell you what the, what the implication of that means. There's still people to come and know him. There's still people in this town, in this place, who are going to come to know Jesus. And that's why he's not come back yet. And you know what that means for us? That means we got to get to work. And that means we get, we get the assurance of knowing God is at work, and he is already present here today. He's right present in our tomorrow. He's working in people's lives right now. He wants to use each of us in very unique ways into people's lives. And so this is what excited Paul. This is what moved him. This is what kept him motivated. This is why he says he stayed for 18 months. And if you've read anything about Paul and Acts, that's like, that's like putting down roots for him. I mean, stay 18 months in one place is crazy for him. I love how uh, Ken Hughes put it this way. He says, so the message that Paul received from the Lord, um, and, and, and it's for us, he says this, quote, Do not be afraid. Stop borrowing trouble. Look to me. I love you. Keep ministering. Keep caring. Keep speaking my name. Inactivity will only imprison your fears. 
Believe that I am with you and that I will give you all the protection you need. Believe that your life will bear fruit. I promise. Promise. You say, but Chris, I don't know how to get unstuck, right? I feel like my feet are frozen in fear. I feel like the cloud of darkness will lift off my head. I have a hard time seeing any friends around me. I feel like everybody's abandoned me. I don't really see any fruit in my life, and this future grace of God just seems so far away. Because if you've been at Parkside at any period of time, um, you know the answer to, my, to that, that question. And the answer is we, we have to look at Jesus. We've got to see his beauty and see his glory because, my friends, he lost everything to give us these promises. As called the friend of sinners, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. As a friend of sinners, standing as it were in the ring, Jesus lost his friends in his greatest time of need. And one of the closest friends for him turned on him and turned him in. The crowds that he loved on, the crowds that he served and healed and cast out demons and all of that, far from bearing fruit, instead they chanted, crucify him, crucify him. He was left all alone in the ring. And the ruler, instead of ruling in his favor and guarding against him and keeping him, protecting him and saving him, instead that ruler turned him over to be crucified. And so Jesus, as it were, on the cross, stood in the ring. You know who he stood in the ring with? Sin, death, hell, Satan himself. They're all in the ring, and they all teamed up on him. And we, as it were, on the outside of the ring, joined in chanting, right? We joined in chanting right along with him. Crucify him, crucify him, take him down. And we did. And as Jesus looked up to his father for a word of grace, you know what he got back? Silence. And so Jesus lay on the mat, as it were, beaten to a pulp, Taking his last breath, he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went through all of that. He truly went through the ringer. And so Jesus was truly alone, dying for our sin. And here's the thing he didn't throw in the towel, he didn't quit, he didn't give up on you and me. He could have. I mean, they even offered it to him, right? Hey, if your God just come down from the cross, go ahead. He could have been like, Fine, I'll come down and take all of you out. I'm done with this. I'm done with humanity. He could have done that, but he did not. He didn't give up. He fought for our forgiveness. He fought for our salvation. And when the bell rang and he went down into death, when he rose again, he punched a hole through the back of death and he tells us, tells us now to come right on through with him. He defeated our greatest enemies so that, so that, uh, and can now be the only one in the entire universe who can truly say to us, you know what, I know you, I've got you, and I'm with you every step of the way. That's Jesus. And this is why we, you know, we take communion. This is what we remember. Remember him in the ring fighting for us. Remember him not giving up on us, providing for us all the forgiveness and relationship we can have with God, and then empowering us by his Holy Spirit to move out and make much of him and make him known. So as we go to communion, we have bread, we have juice at the tables in the front and the back. If you know Jesus today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may come to those tables, take those elements to remember the body and blood of Jesus was broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. If you don't know Jesus, that's not for you. Okay, we're going to have some time of silence. If you're new with us, we do have a little quiet time. I know I talk a long time for you. I'm going to be quiet now, and we're going to have quiet time. Okay? It's an opportunity to reflect. How has, um, how has the Spirit of God, how is he speaking to your soul today? Okay? Take some time to reflect on that. Ask questions. Let God kind of search your heart and know you today. If you don't know him, um, we would love to talk to you about that. There'd be people here to pray for you. If you know Jesus and you, want, you have burdens, you feel alone, you feel afraid, you want somebody to pray for you, there's people here to pray for you. We'd love for you to take advantage of that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word um, here in Acts. It's so encouraging because, God, we walk these roads. We know what it's like, some very much right now, what it's like to be in darkness and fear and feel all alone. 
And yet, God, we're not alone. You're with us. You're working. And God, you promise that as a church, even today, that, Lord, you're at work in people's lives outside. You're working people's lives to change, transform them from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. And Lord, you want to use us in that way. And I pray, God, you would. I pray you'd get us on board with you. We'd feel that sense of invis- invincibility, God, from you that comes by knowing you're in control and knowing you're at work. God, move us from this place to make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen.